I'm Phil Rickaby, and I've been a writer and performer for almost 30 years. But I've realized that I don't really know as much as I should about the theater scene outside of my particular Toronto bubble. Now, I'm on a quest to learn as much as I can about the theater scene across Canada. So join me as I talk with mainstream theater creators you may have heard of, and indie artists you really should know, as we find out just what it takes to be stage-worthy. If you value the work that I do on Stageworthy, please consider leaving a donation either as a one-time thing or on a recurring monthly basis. Stageworthy is created entirely by me, and I give it to you free of charge with no advertising or other sponsored messages. Your continuing support helps me to cover the cost of producing and distributing the show. Just four people donating $5 a month would help me cover the cost of podcast hosting alone. Help me continue to bring you this podcast. You can find a link to donate in the show notes, which you can find in your podcast app or at the website at stageworthy.ca. Now, on to the show. Cassie Muse is a theater artist currently based in Montreal. She's taking her musical Godcatcher to the Edinburgh Fringe this summer. She joined me to talk about writing a musical, preparing for the biggest fringe festival in the world, the inspiration behind Godcatcher, and much more. Here's our conversation. So, Cassie Muse, welcome to the show. Uh, we're going to talk about Godcatcher. What I mean, why don't we start with like what is what is Godcatcher about? Tell me, tell me everything. Yeah. Oh, you got you got to be careful what you ask for. We're going to be here for like eight hours while I <laughs> through like the entire mythological canon for you. But um, basically, Godcatcher is a, a new musical, and it is a reimagining of the myth of Arachne. Um, which is a myth about the uh, a woman who was turned into the very first spider. Not a lot of people are familiar with this myth, but some of you who know it may know that Arachne and Athena, who is the goddess of weaving, had a challenge, and Arachne won, and then was punished and turned into a spider. Sometimes people say that this is because she was ashamed of having ascended a goddess. Sometimes people say this is because of the content of her tapestry. But regardless... Um, in every version, Arachne hangs herself, and then Athena turns into a spider out of pity. So Godcatcher is a reimagining of that myth. Um, not to be too glib, I like to just sort of say it's a bit like Hades Town meets Wicked, you know? We're sort of looking at uh, somebody who's often perceived as a big baddie from their perspective. Um, and then, of course, you know, Hades Town is just such an incredible example of uh, modernizing or connecting myth to, to more modern context. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's what we're striving to do. And so this is this is this is a musical, uh, right? What are the what are the influences of this this musical? What kind of like musical styles? Do, what are the inspirations musically for this 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 show? Yeah, that's a great question. I think the truth. I mean, it's definitely a modern musical, and by that I mean like I'm looking at sort of the likes, you know, Stephen Schwartz's the sort of really um. Uh, catchy musical numbers with like quite a bit of harmonies um one of the things that's been just like so exhilarating as an artist especially as a musical theater artist 
is that sometimes you see shows where you're like, oh, this is interesting that they chose to make the show a musical. It's not necessarily like an organic sit to the content. And that doesn't mean that it's good or bad, but it's like the show could be told as a play or it could be told as a musical or it could be told in many different ways. And I feel like the story of Arachne, which is literally about weaving, is just the perfect vessel for musical theater because it truly to express all of the things going on in in her life and in this really like Greek, Greek time, Greek mythology is like a magical world. To be able to express all of this, you need the music, you need the text, and you need movement. And so it's very much a, a modern sort of, I would I, I, I would say poppy, it's more of a pop musical, um, but with like a lot of really fun harmonies and hopefully some interesting uh, moving parts and a couple of earworms as well. So well, musicals elevate, right? Like that's the whole thing. Like, like a musical where the 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 scene doesn't naturally lead to singing doesn't really work. It becomes like one of those like terrible uh, stereotypes of a bad musical where everybody's like, "Oh, totally sing," you know? Yeah, and it's certainly a challenge for the actors who are on stage, which you know, as a creative, it's been really interesting being like, "Oh my gosh, I care so much for for these actors. I've been there. I want to make sure that I'm doing the best that I can to provide them with." Um, musical choices that make sense and and uh, tell the story in a way that like can only be done through music at times. So it's been like, yeah, thrilling and kind of crazy to be honest with you, but good. Yeah, I mean it's interesting because you were talking about you know sometimes the show you know you, why is this a musical? Why is this a play? Um, mm-hmm. When it, I, I, as soon as you said that, I thought well it's interesting because Sweeney Todd, which is considered one of the great musicals of all time, started as a play without music. It was just a play, and then it was adapted into a musical. And everybody forgets that it was a play. And so yeah. like totally taking it and elevating it and taking it further. Like it's like it should have been a musical all the time, but it didn't start that way. But now it is. Yeah, totally. I definitely think that there's uh, a, a beautiful amount of space within the arts to to grow an idea like that. And I think it is just it's it's thrilling as an audience member and especially as an artist to be like, oh, wow, like it was good. And look at. Look at what more there was to explore within this piece. Like that's always really exciting. Um, but I, but there are some musicals that I've looked at, and even musicals I love. Like I'm going to give an example of like Bring It On the musical, you know, which is like I love that musical. I think it is so fun. There's so much about it that I really enjoy. I often am like I don't know if it needed to be a musical. It doesn't necessarily mean that that it's bad, but I just feel like there are sometimes um, more organic choices than than others. And I just definitely feel like God Toucher was like waiting to be a musical for two thousand years, you know? Sure, yeah. I mean, you sort of you want let, let's let's nerd out a bit about musicals because um, I my gateway to theater was a musical theater cast albums. We had in the house when I was growing up. We had Godspell, we had Oklahoma, we had My Fair Lady. Those were the, the three that we had in the house. And classic classics right and it was like i listened to those oh, it's kind of catchy and then i realized oh these tell a story mm-hmm. so let's nerd out a bit because i'm curious about you know when you're putting together a musical what kind of research are you doing how are you making decisions like what kind of opening do you have what kind of like how are you constructing this this thing yeah oh my gosh so I would say that, you know, this being the first full-length musical, there's been a lot of stumbling around, you know? Um, and originally, I had written sort of, uh, uh, you know, 40 pages of a draft, like a significant amount going in one direction, 
um, where Arachne is choosing to leave her tapestry because, you know, she knows one of the women personally that she ends up portraying in it. And, you know, my co-writer and, and composer, Tyler McKinnon, he said to me, OK, so we could do that. That's a good idea for sure. And if we do that, then the show is about revenge. And if we do it, that Arachne is weaving this tapestry about, you know, women who who have been harmed and she's taking this stand against the gods because she believes that it's right and she's the only one who can. She's the only one with a voice in this moment. Then we're doing a show about justice. What one do you want to do? And I was like, oh, my gosh, obviously justice. Well, not obviously to me. Um, and so, you know, I, my experience so far has just been like putting it out there and being open to what come what comes back we have started this show in so many different directions we um have had characters who have been cut you know like r.i.p gone but never forgotten forever in my heart and so i think i my only real concrete answer for this is that i have tried so many starts and a lot of them have been wrong and then gradually, as you do a lot of wrong things, you get closer to, to what the right thing is. And ultimately, now we open the show with Arachne and her mother and her mother teaching her how to weave. Because we, for a lot of time, we were like, you know, Arachne is famous for weaving. But how did she get there? Who taught her? What? Why is this something that she is so passionate about? Why does she do this publicly? Which would have been, it is kind of revolutionary now, but in the context of Greek mythology, like she... In ancient Greece, she literally would not have been allowed to exist in public without the permission of a husband or a father. So her taking up this space is so revolutionary, it's hard to imagine. And so instead of starting there, we were like, but how did she get there? I want to know her before she gets there. And so that was how we eventually ended up at the beginning that we have now. So I know that's not really like a concrete answer, but it was that a lot of discovery and and trial and error and... Uh, curiosity i guess i mean in, in a lot of ways you when you're writing something especially something as epic as a musical you have to try a bunch of things to figure out you have to try like you said you have to try a lot of wrongs before you find the right you know you there, and there's so many ways to start a musical that you you kind of could do any of them but they're not all the right way to start a show um as far as as far as like creating and, and throwing away how hard was that to like spend the time to create an opening and then realize it's not wrong and that it's not working and then like toss it how hard is that it's devastating i'm i i'm a dramatic and emotional person and i have like walked around crying about it literally like sitting at my computer crying that i'm you know killing these characters or or letting it go and there is something really beautiful about still knowing them and knowing that that is something that i definitely treasure but it's so difficult. I will say, however, that the clearer you are, like the closer that we get to what I know I want the vision to be, the easier it is to do. Because instead of seeing it as, you know, I guess that, you know, when you say yes to something, you're saying no to something else, right? And so in these moments, I'm like, if I say yes to this character taking the, uh, you know, being a B plot line right now, then I'm saying no to Arachne really fulfilling all of the emotional arc that is available to her. I don't want to do that. I want to say yes to Arachne all of the time. And so it, it's easier now than it was even a few months ago. And it's still hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it. Anytime that you that you get attached to something, 
it's it's hard to let it go. Um, and and if you're writing music for something, I can't imagine how much you're pouring into this this person to write a song that's perfect for them and then have to like just give it up. Yeah, it's really hard. And honestly, like I the process has been wonderful with uh Tyler McKinnon. We really are very collaborative in all ways. So, you know, it's like there are some songs where I wrote all not all, but most of the lyrics. And then, you know, he contributed a little bit. And then there's some songs where like I gave one line and then that, you know, was a new idea for him and he was able to latch on to things and um we collaborated back and forth that way. But it's also been interesting because Tyler lives in the UK. And so we've had a couple of moments of real, um, not, I don't even want to say tension because that sounds too dramatic, but just, you know, where we've had to like communicate very clearly. Um, there's one song, for example, called Don't Shoot the Messenger uh, that's sung by Hermes in what would be like, it's like the 11 o'clock number, you know? And he's basically sp- spreading the story about Arachne, which uh, I don't think it's too much of a spoiler to say. We don't believe that the story is accurate. So he's, you know, spreading the lies about about Arathi. And the song is a bop and it's so much fun. And because we're separate, Tyler worked on a version that was like awesome. It was so great. It just was not right for a whole bunch of reasons. And he had done like harmonies and the whole song and like a really cool like moving part. And I had to be like, I'm sorry, but no. And uh, we had a very like, you know, we often do voice notes and I got this very you know, beautiful measured voice note where Tyler was sort of like, uh, I appreciate everything that you're saying. I absolutely think that you're right. Um, I am upset because I love this song and I just need to like not talk about it until tomorrow. Like, I love you. Good night. And I'm like, okay, great. So there's also that sort of um, uh, dynamic that happens sometimes where we really have to like make space for each other to let go of the things because I think that your brain can be at the conclusion of like, this is what has to happen. And then your emotions are still like 30% of the way there. So we've definitely tried to make space for each other when we're in those those moments of dissonance between like what we know is right and how we feel about losing the material we love, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, how do you navigate those, like the disagreements? It's not like you can necessarily sit down face to face and have a conversation um, mm. because of the distance and, and also a time difference as well. So how do you navigate disagreements when they occur in that, in a, in a, this kind of writing partnership? Yeah. I think to be honest with you, Tyler and I have very complementary and opposite skills, which is that I'm very good at sort of like vomiting out a draft that has like, you know, two good lines in it. And Tyler is really good at reading it and thinking about it and pulling out something. I always feel like I give him like a piece of poop and he you know looks at it and then turns it over and goes did you mean this and it's a diamond and i'm like oh my god i did that's even better than i thought i was gonna be um so we're lucky that we have sort of complementary skills in that way and we've known each other for a really long time so that certainly certainly helps i think we haven't we've i think we've always been successful about getting to a place where we both feel really excited about whatever the change is um but it's not easy. Like there definitely have been some things where I feel like I've been like, okay, I'm going to let go of that because obviously this section is very important to Tyler. And I'm like, is is this really important to me that this goes exactly my way? And I'm like, no. Do I think I'm the only person who knows this story really intimately? Definitely not, you know? Um, and so then I think because Tyler and I are both 
our desire is to have for a hundred percent of the show, both of us be really on on the same page inside and excited. It means that we don't really have huge disagreements about the important stuff, which I, to be honest with you, I mean, I've, I've collaborated with a lot of people and I think I'm very competent and intelligent and a lot of other great things, but I think sometimes I'm hard to work with because I'm very emotional. So it's been really eye-opening for me to collaborate with somebody who can, you know, understand that about me and meet me with patience and grace instead of being like, Kathy just gave me a five-minute mythology voice note again. And then the next day I'm like, I'm sorry, you're right. That's actually not important that people know the root of the word Agora. You know, <laughs> he's very patient with me about stuff like that. It's funny and the then, things that a writer that a writer latches onto and is in the moment like, this is the most important thing that people know. And then somebody's like, nobody's actually going to care about that. And you're like, oh, yeah, I, 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 I care about it. Totally. And it's, it's good to, I think it's important that the people who are writing shows be that passionate about the things that are in it and the nuts and bolts and the sort of, you know, like scaffold of the world. I think that's so important. But also, especially because Greek mythology is such a, uh, a large, all-encompassing subject that has a lot of variety and nuance in it you know there's like different translations there's there's a lot of context that you like can't really explain to people before going into a show and a lot of people have you know some some reference to it some people don't have any you know like we've had people be like i don't know who the goddess athena is i'm like really the lady with the helmet you haven't like seen that so you know you, you really can't make any assumptions with this kind of material and so sometimes when like your knowledge of the world gets in the way of the audience actually hearing the story you want to tell um I feel really grateful that I get, I don't want to say called out because that's a, like, I, I get invited to reconsider how yeah. the sort of like technical correctness of my references are. Well, it's interesting because if you look at a show like Hades Town, they don't make any assumptions about about you under knowing who everybody is. They tell you who everybody is. You, you're introduced yeah. to Hermes is this and these are the muses and they do that. Like it, it tells you, it's just in case, you know, there's like one person in the back row who's like, now, who are these people? You know, you tell yeah. so that everybody in the audience gets the same opportunity to understand their relationships. And it's so important. And, and you know, it's it's sometimes we it's easy to make assumptions about what people know. Totally. Totally. But. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think I think we're on the way to being, if not at least like accessible to people who aren't familiar with Greek mythology, then at least. uh if they're like, well, I don't know what that is, but it's not so important that I don't understand the story, you know? So right. We're in, a, we're in a pretty good spot because, you know, sometimes people are just like, I just told you that Hermes was the god of messages. And they're like, but what does that mean? What does he yeah. do? And I'm like, well, you know what, man? There, yeah. You go read a book. Like, yeah. y'all fight. <laughs> like, yeah, it's funny. It's <laughs> it's funny the things that, 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 that you know, like it's the, it's the fine line of, uh, what do people need to know? What do I want them to know? And what's the fine line in between? Because I want them to know all of the things, and they can't. Of course, I can't brain dump all of this stuff into their heads. Totally. Oh man, wouldn't that be great if we could just airdrop information into other people's heads? It's like somebody, somebody walks into the theater and they're like, "Oh yes, now I understand. I know this story. I'm looking forward to seeing how this is a musical." Oh my gosh, high papers in modern day Turkey, fascinating. Like, you know, it's not so <laughs> <laughs> now, as as 
as somebody who's writing a musical, when did you first, or has written, I mean, we'll say has written, because by the time this this goes up, you will be about to do it in the Edinburgh Fringe. Um, when was When was your first inkling that creating a musical might be something that you want to do? That's a good question. I I think actually, I mean, I I have written all of my life, you know, and it's it's interesting when I reflect on that journey. I look at like how you know, like my parents for one Christmas when I was eight years old, I like wrote them a book of poems and typed it on a typewriter and bound it together with no like no no shame, no self consciousness. I was just like. I wrote special poems for you guys, yeah. So I think I have always had an interest in writing. I've always sort of written as even a way into into characters, you know, like whether that be journaling or whether that be doing something experimentally from their perspective. Um, but I didn't actually really commit to writing a musical until uh, this this particular show. And basically, what happened was during the during the Panini. You know, when it was was early on and we were all sort of hanging out. And personally, I was um, probably enjoying a little too much gin. Um, I was having a conversation with someone on Zoom or, or whatever, as you do. And I I don't even remember how they brought it up. But they said, oh, yeah, you really like mythology. What's your favorite myth? I said, my favorite myth is the myth of Arachne. And they said, I don't know that one. And I proceeded to have like a 50-minute not quite ranch. There was some conversation. They did engage with with me. But, you know, just talking to them about, like, I think that the ending of the myth was rewritten. A lot of people don't know it. I feel absolutely livid that most modern portrayals of Arachne just show her as this, like, villainous, uh, murderous, awful spider creature when I'm like, she literally wove a tapestry that made the gods look at what they've done to mortal women you know i'm just like how anyway so you know i had this long conversation and i was like oh and there's there's so many things that are related today and it's so interesting to think about like abusive power structures and the erasure of the female narrative and and beyond that like you know what what it would have been like for her to like have her story stolen from her, all, all of these things you know i said i don't know why no one has written this yet and my friend said to me why don't you do it and I was like, what? Me? No, I don't. And they were like, you obviously know more than enough to write this show. And you care about it enough to talk to me and be rated for like an hour. So I had a friend sort of plant that seed and uh, spent some time in quarantine in Nova Scotia with um, uh, like quarantining before caring for a family member. And there was a piano and I sort of just started playing and then I reach sort of reaching out to people to try and figure out who to collaborate with because I was like I do not want to do this on my own and uh originally Tyler I had written a song that's not in the show anymore and Tyler actually like helped by giving cording underneath it for it I had just sort of written a melody of lyrics and he didn't say anything at all because he was like I know this is your story I really want to be involved but I don't want to be that guy who's like oh you're telling a story with a female lead and I think that I could you know get in here um and then a couple months later i was like i think i'd like to do this together would you like to and he was like yes i was basically just waiting in the wings um so yeah i mean i guess that is a long-winded way of answering but but 
it's uh, was never an obvious choice to me, you know, hmm. it was certainly like offers I got from from other people. Hmm. When you, you know, you you performed a lot of musicals in your time. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, did it never did it never occur to you to be like, I wonder what it would be like to create my own? Was that not something that you really considered? I think I in spite of the fact that I've performed a fair amount, I definitely feel like I suffer from imposter syndrome. I think a lot of people do. And so and I feel like it never seemed achievable to me. It never seemed like reasonable or achievable. There's I think only like thirty percent of writers of musicals are are women. So the like it's very, very small. And that's in like a modern context. Obviously, if you look back at the classics, it's even less. And um it honestly never really occurred to me. Now, I was very passionate and really loved doing new work. And so I feel like I've done a couple of workshops. And up until stepping into this role, if you had been like, what's your favorite thing to do? I would have said, workshop a new musical. I love doing that. Um, but yeah, it really just hadn't occurred to me until somebody was like, you should do it. Imposter syndrome is a funny thing. It's yeah. like this thing that... I like to think, and people who have, people who have have real talent, people who have like real skill, almost universally suffer from from imposter syndrome, and people Slowly. who don't have any, and who are just sort of like, are completely unaware of their own limitations, they have no imposter syndrome, and that's one thing that I'm kind of like, because everybody that I know who's like at all creative hits this certain point in in the creative process where they're like, everything sucks, I suck, this is terrible. Uh, why am I even doing this? And it can't, it's so it's universal and hard to just deal with. Absolutely. I think, have you heard of, I think it's the five stages of of creating or, or writing or whatever. And the first one is like this. Yeah, this is awesome. And the second one is like, okay, this is kind of, t- oh, six stages. The second one is like, okay, this is kind of tough. The third one is like, this really sucks. The fourth one is like, I really suck. The fifth one is, this might be okay. And then the sixth one is like, this is totally awesome. So, you know, we, I think, I think all creators go through the cycle. Um, yeah, but our, our dramaturg, Matt Palapiak, actually said that like right at the very beginning. That was like, this, this might be useful for you guys. And yeah. I was like, oh my God, I yeah. feel so see, I've just hung out at level four, which is I'd suck like a lot. Yeah. But I, and I do feel like I, I bounce around a bit. Like I get just so excited when we do a workshop or somebody sings one of our songs or or whatever. You know, like that. Obviously, those are the great moments where you sort of float past that level. But it's um, it can be hard to see the light when you're stuck in the ice I suck tier. You know. We used to refer to it in with uh, one of my old collaborators, Richard Ball. And we would be creating something. We would always refer to it as hitting the wall. Mm. And the wall was short for the wall of shit. Like, (laughs) it doesn't matter. At a certain point during during the process, we hit the wall of shit where we are convinced that everything about this is just shit. And then you're like, well, we've come too far now. So you push through and then maybe on the and on the other side, you kind of figure it. It's it's not. We made it through the wall of shit where everything felt like shit. But now it's fine. Incredible. Yeah, I definitely know the wall of shit very, very instantly. We're well acquainted. I feel like I feel that for sure. Now, Cassie, you are from originally from Nova Scotia, the Maritimes, right? Yeah, uh, that's right. What was your origin story for like becoming a theater creator, becoming a, a, an actor, becoming a, a singer? What 
how did how did how did young you become you you? <laughs> oh, that's so sweet. Um, so, you know, I in my my family is a very musical family. There's lots of singing and stuff, and like big family. And I'm sure you're not shocked to hear that like the East Coast has a lot of music and stuff. So, it, and I was raised Roman Catholic. Um, I not a practitioner practitioner of that anymore, but I used to sing in church a lot too, like every week. You know, so there was music around me all of the time. And then in grade five, well, actually, technically, my first ever role was when I was in grade three. I was um, uh, Snow White, but it was in French. So it was a Julie et Setna. And, you know, that was one of those things where it was like, I memorized the lines really easily. I really loved it. It was really fun. But that was sort of like classroom context. And then when I was in grade five, my school was doing uh, Anne of Green Gables. And I was cast as Anne of Anne of Green Gables at like age 11. And that was just kind of it, honestly. Like after that, I was like, this is the jam. And I will say one thing I feel super grateful for, uh, especially because I've been a teacher for, you know, kids doing musicals and stuff. And I've had uh, parents be like, why is my kid not the lead? You know, parents who, parents who think they're advocating for their children, you know? And I think, and I understand that. I, it's hard to have your kids not get what they want. Um, but for me, like in grade five, I was in, in Green Gables and I was the lead, showed up on the first day and knew all my lines. It was amazing. And then the next year they did the Lion King and I was like a hyena and had a solo singing. So I had, had no role. And I remember talking to the music teacher, Madame Chesson, who was like the director as well. And I said to her, like, I, my, did I do something wrong? Like, I thought that I was good. And she just said to me, Kansi, you are excellent. But this year, it's not your turn. And you're going to have other stuff to do in this show that you're really going to love. And being a hyena meant that I was also, like, in the ensemble and, like, dancing a lot and stuff. And I was like, oh, my God, this is liberating. I get to make up my own stuff and, like, be with everybody else. And then I ended up going on to have, like, a bit of a career in, in, in dance, you know? And so... I feel like even from a young age, I've had people who really taught me that like the creative journey is not about the role. It's about like what you bring to the experience and and in fact, like making space for other people to shine in the moments that like, uh, uh, I want to say really suit them. I know that's not very, but yeah, it's just not always your turn. And uh, I feel like those two experiences have like had such an effect on me for my whole life. So but what an important yeah. lesson for a kid, like to learn, because if if you're somebody who feels like you should always have the lead and, mm. you know, especially when you're a younger, you're in school, that sort of thing. And you get, you know, there was, well, you know, if we if we don't give if we don't give uh, Phil the lead, his parents are going to come in and yell at us. So we're just going to give him the lead. What a you would completely unprepared if you decide to go into theater later, like like yeah. you've never that has faced the like uh, disappointment or rejection so what a what a crushing up thing it will be if you don't when you don't always get that so and totally. generally it's good for kids to understand disappointment you know yeah well and beyond that i think it's like i think it really is so important that kids understand that like you are multifaceted and so are the kinds of experiences that you're going to have in life and so not prioritizing certain experiences over other ones is I just think 
such an important way to be like, hey, kid, your worth is not based on how you perform. You have it already. And here's different ways that you um, engage with with that. By And also, I mean, I think as an actor, it's one of those things where you're like, yeah, you're supposed to experience life and then bring that experience and perspective to your characters and to your work. And how can you do that if you're just like a freaking lead all the time, you know? Um, but beyond that, on like a very personal level, like I, if I could be only one thing, I would probably want to be a dancer. Like I love dance. I was in like a semi-professional ballet company here and I did, you know, the Nutcracker and performances and I was dancing like 40 hours a week as as a, a teen and stats. And I am 100% certain that like some of the most joyful moments of my life would not have happened had I not been put in the hyena hyena club in like grade six because I just didn't even consider that dancing was this super cool thing that I would really enjoy. So little me is so excited that I got to share that story. I'm glad to hyena. Thank you for asking. <laughs> Now, what, just to follow up on that, like a lot of people have experiences. They do some theater in 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 public school and in middle school and in high school, um, but not everybody decides that that's going to be the thing for them. Do you remember when you were like, "Oh, this is it for me. This is this is the career. This is it." And then, yeah, it it was a hundred percent when I got cast in Andy Green Gables, and it wasn't actually. Um, uh, it wasn't actually being the lead, even though obviously like that's fun too. Um, but I have always felt a real kinship with Anne. Like I always loved reading her and I felt like we would be friends and we would be sisters. And so I felt like I really knew her. And so then being like, I get to bring to life this person. And it was a very imaginative kid, obviously. So being like, oh my gosh, I get to like, bring this person to life in the way that I know them and I can do this for the rest of my life wow and I've just never really want I the caveat is it's not that I've always been an actor or that I've always been pursuing the arts right but for me you know when I've been like oh yeah here's a great marketing opportunity that I'm curious about I'm gonna go work as a marketing coordinator or as a marketing manager and you know here's an opportunity to you know do some teaching for a while that's kind of cool I want to I want to figure that out um, so it's not like I've ever been um, single-minded about what that looks like, but it has always been clear to me that like that—that's the core of like how I most want to interact with the world. You know? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Did you go to theater school or did you go straight to Toronto? And be like, this is it. <laughs> yeah, I went to I went right to Toronto and I went to Randolph. Okay, yeah, yeah, Randolph yeah. program for two years. And then I was working for, you know, about six years in Toronto and I was feeling like um, not, I was feeling like I was hitting the, the wall of shit for sure. And also just like a bit of a plateau. And I was like, I'm unsure if this is because uh, I should be focusing on other artistic talents that I have to offer or if it's the place that I'm in, like maybe the city isn't so great for me. And I'm also curious about, you know, I went to school when I was like 18 to 20. And when I was like 26, I was like, I understand myself so much more. And I feel like I would really be able to engage with education now um, with, you know, more agency, more purpose, uh, like a more clear vision of like what I actually want to get out of it. And also I was like, you know, I'd go home when I was 18 and I'd practice my favorite 
my favorite bars or my favorite songs or whatever. And then I'd come in the next week and go, I don't know why I'm not getting any better at these hard bits, you know. So there are things like that that I was just more aware of some of my tendencies that I was like, okay, well, I'm not going to do that. So I went to Scotland, to the Royal Conservatory of Scotland, and I did my master's in uh, musical theater there. And yeah, that was transformative and like thrilling. And um, I loved studying there. The program has changed a little bit since I've been there, but I still, you know, we we did a workshop of Godcatcher in January of 2022 with the master's students. And so I definitely still think sort of the... Um, the thing that was most exciting for me, which was like, they want to empower you to like decide what you want to learn. They want to challenge you. They also want to give you the tools to be able to walk out as a creative that uh, has a voice and uh, also has multiple ways that they can engage with the arts. So whether that's like teaching or choreographing or directing or whatever, they, they want to give you the tools to like develop your artistry. And then, of course, my singing voice also got way better because being in being, having an amazing teacher and being like you know dedicated to doing to doing the actual work I improved exponentially and and being in a new place where I didn't feel like anybody knew me was really liberating you know realize I think how much you uh how much you you know a plant becomes accustomed to the pot that thing right you can't grow any any wider than that or larger or what tall or whatever and so being there, it felt like I had been repotted into like a much bigger pot. And I was like, oh, I can do that? Yeah. All right. That's interesting because I was just, uh, uh, you know, the two shows that I've, I've created, taken to Fringe Festivals, none, none of them I've premiered in Toronto. Like, mm -hmm. because, you know, you take them somewhere else because why if it's not as good as thinking, like, you know, you would need to get away from the people that you know. Mm -hmm. So- you can sort of like risk a little bit more if, if, if you know, nobody you know is going to come and see this, then maybe you, know, you could take a chance of failing, you know? Yeah, totally. But I also think that it's like, it's not necessarily bad that mm. people know you and maybe have cast you as a role or, or um, have experiences with you that have, but like we all grow and we change all the time, you know? And so sometimes to be able to sort of like, make that change apparent to other people or to experiment with that um, new version of, of yourself or your artistic choices or whatever. Sometimes being in a different environment is actually the thing that is like fertilizer for that, you know? And that's not a negative comment about the people who know you. It's no, no, no. Fact, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, uh, you, did I know you before you went to Scotland or after? Did you? Yeah. Did you? you so you asked before us. You were an usher before you went to Scotland. Yes. Well, it's funny because I actually was always like, there should be a front of house musical. And we had this conversation. Yeah. Like, you're remembering this now. Because it was I like, it was like this idea that like, like people would be waiting for, like the show would start when the audience actually files in. Like the show would yeah. start because the ushers were the performers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we did. But you know what? For me, that was like more fun brainstorming and like yeah, chatting yeah. with you about it than it was like, I'm actually gonna gonna write this thing, you yeah. know? But I do still think FOH, front of house, like somebody needs to properly write that show. Absolutely, know? absolutely. Now, one of the things about being an usher, especially one of the, the, the big, you know, theaters that tends to do a lot of musicals, is, mm -hmm. um, you tend to watch the same show a lot. Mm -hmm. Two things I want to talk about. One is the phenomenon of 
after a while, the the whole show running in your head, and you could turn to any fellow usher and say, where are you in this show? And they could tell you what song they're at in this show. Yeah. And you're at a different point because it's just constantly running in your head, driving you slowly mad. Totally. Um, and, but the other thing is that you can learn a lot about a show, how it's yeah. constructed and what the weak points are, and also um, the weak points in the performances. Like, like, you know, you learn a lot about performing a show over time just by watching it a whole lot. Did you <laughs> find things that you were able to learn just just watching a show over and over? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the two things that I that I really took away from being an usher, besides the fact that I'm like, it, of course, it drove me crazy, right? Of course, there's bits that you get annoyed at or whatever, but like, not really. Do you know what I mean? Like, I feel like I would be very happy to do a similar job to that as long as I was able to do other things as well. Like, it was it was beautiful. I definitely feel like the people who were really, really consistent were never the people who... I'm like, this is my, not quite, quite, quite that, but they were never the people who really were like, this is my whole life. And like, this is like absolutely everything. They were the people who had boundaries. Right. They were the people who like came up and came out and did the same warm ups. They were the people who obviously like really enjoyed what they were doing, but there were just people who, they were the people who took vacations, right? They were the people who like, you know, Really and truly, I felt like they were treating it as as a job and not as much as an identity. And I was like, wow, that's the person who lasted through six months the the best and who was consistently the best, even though some people would have really like beautiful performances and then the next day not be as amazing. So I have always sort of thought that it was interesting seeing that in action. Just to build on that, it's interesting how, you know, because I think a lot of people who go into this industry... Um, it does become their identity. It becomes their whole life, and they don't have vacation, and they don't do take time for themselves, and they don't. And then the pandemic hits, and you have no choice but to sit and figure out who you are, and 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 sort of like you know, what am I outside of this? Something that maybe you didn't have to consider before, and hopefully that's something that that you they take forward uh, into the career and like realize the importance of those boundaries. Totally. I just think it's so convenient for the people who run these shows and make money off of people for for artists to believe that they're the ones who give us value and that like us working is what it's so convenient for them. Right. Because it enables them to ask us to do things that are not beneficial for us. It it, it enables them to um, have perhaps I mean, I don't want I haven't been in any particularly crazy poor working conditions, but, you know, we all hear the stories about that um it and it, it enables them to ask you to do things that like are dangerous for your body like there's just and beyond that it's like it's a lot easier to be used if you're feeling really like this is the only way that i can get validation and i just i'm like there's nothing wrong with being proud of your work and there's nothing wrong with feeling like you know art is your purpose because i definitely feel like that mm-hmm. but i don't feel like it is what defines me and I don't feel like it's what gives me worth and I think that those are things that like I just hope everybody has emerged from from the panini with a little bit more of a sense of that because I also think it will it enables them to engage with art more safely and when artists are doing that they have more longevity and more to give so absolutely 
you burn out less, you, you're less likely to burn out when you have time for yourself. And most important lesson of, of the pandemic is like how not to burn out because you can need time for yourself. Totally. And we need everybody. You know, we yeah. need, we need all artists. We need, yeah. we need us. So, you know. Yeah. Uh, but I interrupted your thought about the things that you learned from watching a musical over and over again. Oh, oh. The thing that I learned the most from being an usher, which I do not think is something that I would have had otherwise. Um, some people talk a lot about how their vision is the goal of the art, right? Like, I have this vision, like, this is what I want to do. This is, and engaging with audiences over and over again and seeing how affected they were by the shows, um, first of all, was like a real privilege. Like, I, I often felt really just so grateful to see the effect that the art had on people and not people who were necessarily um, uh, technical, who could be like, that's a beat or, you know, whatever. Like, that to me felt like uh, a huge, a huge privilege and something that I was like, I don't want to judge this going forward. And a, a specific example of that was, you know, The Wizard of Oz, when we were this beautiful, there was a lot of, of really lovely stuff. And there was a woman who was using like the handicap elevator and I helped her up and she was like an immigrant from India and she I said to her something, you're like, oh, you're excited to see the show. And she said, yes, you know, like my brother, when I like my brother basically raised me and he used to play somewhere over the rainbow for me on a guitar that only had like one or two strings. I was like, oh, wow. And she said, yeah. So I'm just like, I'm just I'm going to be thinking of him and I'm so excited. And so when she came out at the end, I said, how was the show? And I'm like going to get emotional. She said something like it was like having him alive with me again. And she was like, it was beautiful. It was so stunning. And I was like, you know. So wherever the rainbow is not Sweeney Todd or like yeah. things that I think of in my like artistic brain as something that is like it is of immense value. I don't want to say that, but but certainly like it's not what I would say like, oh, this is the the pinnacle of the craft, you know. And so seeing people have those kinds of experiences and reactions really like change my opinion about the value of art and also I want to make, I can't make art that is accessible for every audience. Like not everybody is going to resonate with the things that I do, but I'm like making things that resonate with people in that way is more important to me than doing something that I think is, uh, you know, artistically a, a fascinating take on, yeah. you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, I think that's the biggest thing I learned from ushering actually. I think it's so important to, 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 to accept the fact that, that you're never going to make something that appeals to everybody. Um, yeah. And when you try, you fail. You, mm-hmm. you please nobody. Um, but if you, if you, what what is that from uh, uh, the title title of show? Um, I'd rather be nine people's favorite thing than a hundred people's mm. ninth favorite thing rather or something. Be, like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nine people's favorite thing yeah. than a hundred. Yeah, you're yeah, yeah. Oh my god, you know you have to just sing it though, right? Like I know you, you do. Don't 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 think I didn't sing it in my head before I said it. Don't think I didn't. You know, the thing that one of the things that I learned from ushering is is the way that audiences talk when they didn't entirely enjoy the show, but they paid enough money that they think they should. Yeah. You know, uh, because at a certain point, you don't want to you don't want to be leaving a show saying, well, that was terrible, especially, mm-hmm. when, you know, you're walking out with a bunch of people. You paid a lot of money. You don't want to be disappointed. People say things like you did such a good job. Yeah. Every time I heard that, I was like, you did not like this show. <laughs> totally. 
I really loved it when people would say stuff like, wow, they were really just, they really just giving it up there or like yeah. something like that, you know, like, wow, they really put their whole hearts into that. And yeah. Like, Ooh. Ooh, you did not enjoy this show. You did, this is not your show. But, you know, everybody's trying to put on the, the positive face. And it's 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 funny the way that, that, that people kind of lie to themselves in the moment, you know, like, because they don't feel like they should uh, dislike the show. But also, man, sometimes we put stuff on our stages and... Uh, people don't enjoy it or they they feel like oh maybe i just don't understand theater mm-hmm. right and then they're like well i guess i don't need to go to theater and go anymore yeah. yeah i think it's really tricky too though because we have such a late like access rate or level to the arts and by that i mean that like i'm just gonna use the uk as an example so the uk does pantomime every year I'm not sure if you're familiar with pantomime it's you know um, like a silly Christmas show. It's usually like Mother Goose, but yeah. there's some sort of dame, which is a person in drag, and it's funny, and kids are allowed to like bring in like lightsabers, and there's call and answer, and a lot of it is, you know, has been established for a long, long time. But for most people in the UK, this is that's, that's their introduction to the theater, right? So they feel like they belong there. And then that means that as you grow through life, you have less of a barrier to feeling like you can engage with it in a like that there's a correct way to engage with it right because you're just like well i've been fucking going to pants sorry yeah, we, can fucking pant- swear. we can fucking swear it's okay um, i was like yeah i've been going to pants since i was fucking five years old yeah. and like i've you know been up on stage or they wish me happy birthday or whatever so those people don't feel they feel like they belong in the theater mm-hmm. at least and they go at least to panto every year mm-hmm. right like the pantos sell out everywhere yeah Whereas here, like there were, I remember there being someone coming to The Wizard of Oz and they were 65 years old. And I was like, are you excited to see the show? And it was a man and his wife and said, I'm so excited. This is my first ever play I've been to. And I was oh. like, well, yes, it's a great one. Like, wonderful. Yeah. You know, don't don't throw water on the witch. OK, you know, like stuff, <laughs> stuff like that. Yeah, I love that answer. Yeah. But like and people do that because they feel like they don't belong because they feel like they they don't understand what we want from them and then beyond that they feel bad or not in a way we all feel bad when we're not part of the club right yeah. Yeah. so i mean part of me is just like what everybody needs to do is people needs to start people need to start doing like panto and like shows that are um it, like engage all audiences that are low pressure that are you know like i just i really feel like we need to invite people more in a way that they feel comfortable and from an earlier age i absolutely believe yeah. that i also think that we need to change the way that we talk about theater like we need to start we need to we need to 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 stop the average audience goer not the regular theater goers the average person who might go to see a show doesn't care about the artistic merit they want to know if they're going to enjoy it What's yeah. the show about? What's the style? Am I going to enjoy it? You look at a mm-hmm. Hollywood movie trailer and shirts, some of them are trash and some of them lie. But like at least when you watch it, you're like, I understand. This is in my wheelhouse. I'm going to enjoy this. But we do that so badly uh, when we're talking about theater um, that it sometimes it's no wonder that people are like, I don't know if I want to spend like $80 on a ticket for a show I might not like. I don't know what this is. Somebody tell me, you know? Totally. And I mean, on top of that, and this is just a personal feeling, but I I think that we expect a lot from audiences, right? We expect them to be really brave in the way when they come into the show, 
And I don't think that the industry meets them with the same bravery. No. I don't think we like cast. And I, I mean, I don't just mean diversity, although I definitely mean diversity, but it's like we cast a lot of the same people in things, right? And we don't take chances on a, a lot. I mean, the fact that like I I did, you know, message a few people in Canada about Godcatcher. And then it's like messaging overseas in Scotland in the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, at, like at the underbelly where they programmed six, they like read through the script and not even a good one one like like you know eight months ago or whatever and they not only were like this is exactly the kind of thing that we want to program with like new writers etc etc um they like wrote uh, a letter of recommendation for me to get a Canada Earth Council grant you know so I look at the the I look at the sort of bravery in uh, uh supporting like new work or work that hasn't been like vetted in some way and I don't think the Canadian industry is 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 quite there yet with like material with casting and and with in other ways and so i think it's unfair that we expect the audiences to be really brave and we don't do the same thing no it's absolutely true it's absolutely true we have a tendency to go ahead i was just gonna say because they know right like they know they know they can tell what they can tell when it's like whoa that was like different and interesting or like oh that was like crackly and like oh i've never seen anything like that or like that yeah. like even if they don't like it they do know when the the team is taking risks. yeah they can absolutely. tell they can feel it absolutely and they know when they've been told that there's that somebody's taking a risk and they're not because a lot of shows use risk or innovative and things like that and an audience goes and they're like ah, that feels like a thing that i've probably seen before <laughs> you know you know yeah yeah certainly especially because i think that audiences like it doesn't actually need to be like the the bar is low for being risky, right? Yeah. Because it's like you could do like Hamlet over and over again. And if you're like casting new people, if you're like bringing on new directors, right? Like if you're incorporating elements that you traditionally don't like, these are all things that are actually not that risky. But people could come and see Hamlet every year and be like, oh, last year Hamlet was uh, like this this man and this year was played by like four young actors. And then yeah. the next year it was played by a deaf person and there was ASL. It was incredible. You felt isolated just like he felt. Like there's so, there's just so many opportunities even with the same piece of theater. Yeah. And and I get it because it's like expensive. And especially because Canada is so large. It's one of the beautiful things about, about the country. But it does mean that the viability of like a tour or something like that is just... It's it is more challenging, right? Just the, way- the stages for it. We don't have the stages to be able to like, and, and you know, although you know we see some uh, limitations in programming and things like that, like you were saying, but a lot of that comes from the fact that you know, we have like very few stages. We have very few large stages as well. So it's like you know, their theaters are are not necessarily willing to take a risk because of the fact that like they have to fill this many slots, the money's on the line, all this sort of stuff. And how do you how do you do that when you, money is scarce and audiences you you've convinced yourselves that audiences are apathetic and all this stuff? It's all it's all very hard because you know you look at like in the states there's so many theaters right you can do a do an American tour and like tour for years in different cities and pop over to Canada to Toronto once and then tour around and then pop over to vancouver or whatever like <laughs> just like these little little forays but we don't have the stages to sustain that in canada sadly i mean i think 
I'm really hopeful for the next like 10 years in, in theater in Canada because I do think everybody wants to, you know, solve the problem, quote unquote. Like, I, I don't think that we're necessarily making the boldest choices that we can make. But I do think that people, every, I, I really do believe that everybody wants to uh, contribute to a more vibrant Canadian scene. And so if you're all on the same team, then you're eventually going to row in the same direction, you know? So I, 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 I'm hopeful, yeah. truly. I mean, if I wasn't hopeful, I would pack up this, this podcast, stop <laughs> it, and, and never get on the stage again, right? So like, yeah. it's definitely something that, 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 that I'm keen on and that I think a lot of people are. Um, just as we sort of start to, to run out of time here, I want to talk about a little more specifically about the Edinburgh Fringe and your preparations for Edinburgh Fringe. Um, how do you feel? I mean, it's, it's still about a month or so away. How do you feel getting ready for that? What's your, your general feeling about getting ready to go to the biggest fringe in the world? Honestly, I'm scared shitless. I'm not going to lie. I'm not even going to pretend I'm not going to like, you know, put, well, I am happy, but I am absolutely terrified. Um, I do think that one of the things that I'm just so grateful for that I, you know, like, thank you past me for having the foresight to like collaborate with other people and not try and take this on myself, which is a mistake that I have made many times throughout my life. Um, we have a set of co-producers uh, in, in based in London and in Malta or Edinburgh and, and London, but also in Malta. Um, and they're called uh, Prickly Pear Productions. They're like female-led, female-centered. They also have a show at the Fringe uh, at a different venue that's called Walking Home. And it's part verbatim, like some of it is, it's it, a lot of it is compiled from uh, responses to surveys from women. And it's all about exploring uh, sexual assault and like women existing in public spaces. So, you know, they're doing work that like I'm really excited about. And so to have them over there championing us and being like it's on the ground and feeling like in the moments where I'm really overwhelmed I have not just Tyler but other people that aren't writing Godcatcher to to help with that burden um is it gives me a real sense of of safety you know so that that is yeah that that's like been my saving grace you know Uh, I think it's I think I personally I think it's smart to be afraid of Edinburgh like it's smart (laughs) to to have fear of it because you're respected it's like getting into a lion's cage like if you're just like fuck it whatever uh maybe you know but like you have to understand the thing that you're that you're going to and and it is it is a monster and you have to be prepared to do do the exhausting battle with a monster you know it a a canadian fringe like the edmonton fringe is is massive for canada and it's, it's exhausting. Like the largest in the world. Did you know that? It it's was. Like- it's not anymore. One of the Australian ones overtook it. I know. I know. But um, it's the largest in Canada. It was the, the number two in the world. Um, mm-hmm. And you, you know, you do the two weeks of that and you come out exhausted. Right? You're like, I've done battle with a beast. But it's, <laughs> it's pretty tame. You did battle with a baby bear. It's like the, like some of the other fringes you go to like, Edinburgh's big. And it's good yeah. that you have people there because i think that um, it's a mistake to go to edinburgh and be like i'm doing it all myself you need people on the ground there to work with you and to, to do what they're doing for you yeah absolutely i think i'm i'm sure that you know this it's like you have so many blind spots going into things it's inevitable there's like 
what you know, what you know, you don't know, and what you don't know, you don't know. And that's always like the biggest part of the pie, right? So um, when you have four people who don't know, like that, that pie gets a little bit smaller, you know? Um, but honestly, I think I, I am trying to remind myself in, in these moments that it's like just being at the fringe. It was a dream that I had like two years ago or your, and my, my, uh, my old roommate, Robert Wilkinson, they said to me recently, like, you said you were going to do this and you did it. So no matter what happens, like you did the thing you said you were going to do. And that is wonderful. And I'm just so excited to be surrounded by art. So I'm trying to remember those things in spite of this year that it's like, actually, if your goal is to tell this story and connect with people, well, guess what? That's going to happen. So it's the stage for it. It's the place for it. You know, you're going to be surrounded by stuff that's that's amazing. So what you can mm-hmm. do is like lay the groundwork, do the best work you can, and then try to have fun while you're there. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Well, Cassie, thank you so much for, for talking with me this evening. I really appreciate your time. And it was a great conversation. Thank you for having me. This has been an episode of Stageworthy. Stageworthy is produced, hosted, and edited by Phil Rickaby. That's me. If you enjoyed this podcast and you listen on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, you can leave a five-star rating. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, you can also leave a review. Those reviews and ratings help new people find the show. If you want to keep up with what's going on with Stageworthy and my other projects, you can subscribe to my newsletter by going to philrickaby.com slash subscribe. And remember... If you want to leave a tip, you'll find a link to the virtual tip jar in the show notes or on the website. You can find Stageworthy on Twitter and Instagram at StageworthyPod, and you can find the website with the complete archive of all episodes at stageworthy.ca. If you want to find me, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Phil Rickaby. And as I mentioned, my website is philrickaby.com. See you next week for another episode of Stageworthy. Stageworthy.